we have been going through the tenet systems regarding the selflessness of uh, persons or the lack of an impossible me. We covered in uh, great extensiveness the presentations in the Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, and Chittamatra schools. And uh, last time we did an overview of the Svatantrika position. And now we uh, will do an overview of the Prasangika system so that we have an introduction to the uh, two main divisions of uh, Madhyamaka. And then when we uh, resume our classes in the fall after our summer break, then we can uh, go in uh, more detail back over the Svatantrika and Prasangika positions. We have uh, seen that uh, in the non-Prasangika schools, that uh, all of them uh, assert the same coarse selflessness of persons, and that was that uh, a person, or the uh, soul of a person, is uh, a uh, static, monolithic, or partless um, entity that uh, can exist independently of a body and a mind of aggregates, specifically in terms of uh, liberation. That was uh, that absence is uh, asserted as a uh, an affirming or a impli an implicative negation in uh, Vaibhashika and all the others asserted as a non-implicative um, negation. Then uh, the uh, subtle selflessness is not asserted of persons, is not asserted by uh, uh, Vaibhashika. We get that uh, starting with the Sautrantikas, and that was that uh, um, a, a person does not exist as a self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon. In other words, uh, we already have established that uh, the self is an imputed phenomenon, it's an imputation on the aggregates, but uh, what is uh, being uh, refuted here is that uh, nevertheless it can be known self-sufficiently without the basis appearing first, in other words, something of the aggregates, and uh, then the uh, person as an imputation on that. And uh, we saw that was uh, necessary because uh, a person is a uh, non-congruent affecting variable, which is neither a form of physical phenomenon or a way of being aware of something. So it doesn't have a, uh, a form or anything like that of itself. So it needs a basis in order to appear in cognition, whereas the Vaibhashika said it could appear all by itself. So we had that as the subtle selflessness of uh, persons. In the uh, uh, Prasangika system, what uh, it uh, asserts as the uh, coarse selflessness of persons is the same as the subtle selflessness of persons asserted by the others. So that a uh, self of a person is a self-sufficiently knowable phenomenon. That's taken as the uh, coarse um, 
selflessness. If we understand that, we would understand the uh, core selflessness of, uh, that the others assert, but this is the main focus for that. And then the subtle selflessness of persons is the same as the selflessness of all phenomenon. Because uh, that is uh, the unique view of prasangika as explained in the Galuk systems by Sankapa. So what is this uh, subtle, uh, what is the selflessness of all uh, phenomenon? In uh, Prasangika, they're not going to uh, uh, differentiate a coarse and subtle level of that as we had in uh, uh, Chittamatra, but uh, rather just speaks of uh, one level of this uh, selflessness. And uh, in order to understand this, we need to uh, perhaps approach it in a uh, graded way, as we have been doing uh, through the uh, other uh, by looking at the assertions in the other systems, starting with Sautrantika on this uh, particular point. And it had to do with uh, categories and uh, conceptual cognition. And uh, in the Sautrantika system, if you recall, there is a defining characteristic uh, mark or feature, uh, which is uh, in all non-static uh, phenomenon, on the side of all sta non-static phenomenon, and it has the power by itself to establish that uh, this is a uh, validly knowable phenomenon. So we've been describing that as uh, it somehow encapsulating the phenomenon and making it into a thing. So encapsulating it in plastic, uh, dividing it uh, from everything else. And this defining characteristic uh, feature is what allows, uh, is what distinguishing, the mental factor of distinguishing focuses on or pays attention to so that it is uh, differentiated or distinguished from all the other phenomenon around it in a sense field and from everything that it is not. That's this defining characteristic mark that makes it into a thing. And also, uh, the Sautrantika says that uh, this uh, defining characteristic uh, mark on uh, individual items, non-static phenomenon, is uh, what has the power to establish that uh, it actually fits into a category. In other words, to use the Chittamatra terminology, it is the seat on which the category can be set and which uh, a name or designation can be set. Remember, names are designated on categories and through categories on individual items that fit in the category. So, in our practical application of that, we uh, looked at, uh, in ourselves, what are the uh, categories that we objectively fit into in uh, the Sautrantika system. It's talking about objective reality and that objectively we do fit into certain categories that can be our gender, it can be our age, it can be our uh, um, native nationality, our uh, native uh, uh, religion that we were born into. 
there can be uh, our profession, there are all these various things and how we get uh, difficulties when we uh, deny uh, any of these uh, categories that uh, we belong to or overemphasize and single out one category after another. So this is a very helpful uh, view. Then we uh, graduated from that to the Chittimatra system and in the Chittimatra system, we saw that uh, in uh, non-conceptual cognition, in other words, seeing, hearing, and uh, so on, that uh, there is a defining characteristic mark on the side of the object that does establish its existence. So although the object that we might see and so on does not arise from a different natal source than the cognition of it, the primary consciousness and mental factors of it, that they all come from a seed of karma. Nevertheless, when it arises, <coughs> when the object arises, when the consciousness arises, and all these non-static phenomena, these called dependent phenomena in Chittimatra, they all, they each have a plastic coating around them making, you know, because the defining characteristic inside them, on their side, uh, establishes them as a thing. So that we have in uh, uh, Chittimatra, never aside, I mean, despite the fact that they do not exist, that we can't establish their existence externally to uh, the mind that cognizes them, because how do you know that they exist? that they're there in order to be able to see them. So uh, this made a lot of sense. And then in conceptual cognition, uh, still that defining characteristic mark on the side of the object establishes it as a thing. However, it does not, it is not a seat on which the category or the uh, name or word can be set. In other words, it doesn't have the power to establish that uh, this item fits into this category and is what a word refers to. So we saw that uh, the application of that is that uh, uh, categories are actually, uh, the categories that we fit into are actually subjective. That uh, if we uh, are working with categories such as loser and uh, someone that nobody loves and uh, things like that, that uh, uh, we don't objectively belong in that type of, uh, fit into that type of uh, category, that that is totally dependent on uh, the person's concept, you know, the categories in which they uh, fit us and so, and how we fit ourselves into it. So if we fit ourselves into categories that uh, produce suffering, we uh, are not, that's not objective reality. That uh, we can also look at ourselves in, uh, through, or regard ourselves through different categories and uh, uh, in a sense diminish the amount of mental suffering that uh, we would have. Okay, is that clear? Then we went on to Svatantrika last time, and we saw that uh, Svatantrika says that uh, 
that defining characteristic mark by itself doesn't have the power to either on the side of the object they agree that it's on the side of the object findable there but uh, they say that it doesn't have the power by itself to establish that uh, this is a thing to establish the existence of something as a validly knowable phenomenon and in terms of uh, how do we establish it and it does and I should uh, remark and it doesn't have the power by itself like Sautrantica says to establish it as fitting into a category so those two points that the uh, defining characteristic on the side of the object by itself can establish that it's a thing and establish what category it fits into that objectively that is the extreme of uh, um, absolutism that uh, is the Sautrantic position so that is negated but also what they negate is that uh, uh, what will be the Prasangika position is that uh, things are established as a something phenomena are established as a noble phenomenon merely by the power of mental labeling with a category and designation with words and that they fit into the category also merely by means of the power of mental labeling with categories and or des and designation with words so that is the extreme of nihilism according to uh, Svatantrika and it refutes that as well so it says that uh, we can only establish I mean that the existence of something and the fact that it fits into a category uh, can only be established by that combination of the uh, defining characteristic uh, feature on the side of the object and the um, mental you know uh, um, category and designation the category of a validly knowable thing and the category of a um, a watch or a toy or whatever it uh, might be and so with that we have the Svatantrika position and the Svatantrika position was uh, established primarily with uh, consideration of uh, caste in uh, India that uh, uh, was stating that uh, if things were uh, what th something is is established and what category it fits into is established merely by the power of mental labeling the prasangika position then anything could be labeled anything and a beggar could be labeled a king and so in order to uh, preserve uh, and justify this type of uh, caste system and all the various uh, things that are uh, similar to that then we have this uh, Svatantrika position that there has to be some defining characteristic on the side of the object and uh, something uh, uh, and mental labeling so we saw that this has this is the idea that uh, there's something on the side of me that makes me me and not you so a defining characteristic 
that uh, we can think of it as a genome, we can think of it as a barcode, we can think of it as whatever, but that genome or barcode doesn't establish it without the reader of the, of the barcode or the uh, genome. So you have to have the combination of the uh, two. But nevertheless, there is something on my side that makes me me. And we saw that that doesn't uh, dis uh, um, exclude the possibility that uh, uh, of the uh, pus water um, nectar uh, conundrum, you know, uh, of the fact that uh, to a certain uh, uh, group of uh, beings by convention, they will experience something as uh, pus, uh, that would be the hungry ghosts or the clutching ghosts, as water, humans would experience as that, and uh, nectar, the gods, would uh, experience like that. So we have uh, an application of that, that uh, there are certain um, there would be a basis in me for uh, my being um, let's say we took this in terms of a task and that uh, there is something that uh, um, we are faced with a situation at work and uh, there is something on the side of the, uh, ta of the thing that we are uh, dealing with that uh, um, makes it valid for us to label it as a task and so on. But whether we label it as a horrible task or we label it as a uh, challenge is basically up to us. But uh, nevertheless, there is something there. It's not uh, a nothing that we are labeling like that, an amorphous nothing. You have a question? Yeah, the thing that's there, you, could you say it's a hard task? We're saying hard is already like a, one of these points of view. Well, a, har a complex, a hard or a complex task, um, what is uh, complex for and difficult for one person could be easy for somebody else. So that also is, uh, that's subjective, actually. But we're here we're talking about what something is. Is it a, ta is it a, um, is it an, is it an, is it a challenge or is it an ordeal? Is it, you know, these sort of things. How do you uh, approach it? You can also look at it in terms of uh, friend, enemy, and stranger. If we want to look at it in terms of the uh, meditations on equanimity. There is some feature on the side of a person that, uh, uh, let's say, that they uh, um, are difficult, that they, they have a great deal of anger. They're an angersome person. So we could uh, see them as an enemy. Mind you, enemy just seems is, you know, that's maybe too strong a word. That is the word that's used, but it could be just somebody that we don't like, that we feel hostility toward. But we could also uh, label them a friend because they teach us patience and they teach us love. So, uh, you know, there is something there 
on their side, but what's there on its side doesn't have the power by itself to establish them as a friend or an enemy. But uh, it is through that in, con in con conjunction with the mental label that uh, establishes it. So this is the uh, Svatantrika position. So now we get to the Prasangika position. So you see this is a gradual development of our uh, understanding of uh, how um, categories basically work. You know, mental labeling with categories work and it works. And in the Prasangika system, it says that uh, we can only establish the uh, existence of something as a validly knowable phenomenon and as a uh, belonging to a category by the power of mental labeling with a category and designation with a word, words alone. That there is no findable defining characteristic on the side of an object that establishes its existence as a thing uh, by, its, by its own power or by its power in conjunction with mental labeling. There is nevertheless a defining characteristic of the object, otherwise the mental factor of distinguishing won't, wouldn't work. But that defining characteristic doesn't have this power to establish that it exists either by itself or in conjunction with mental labeling. That's a very important distinction to, uh, to make. Let me repeat it. Phenomena do have a defining characteristic feature. Otherwise, it would be impossible for the mental factor of distinguishing to be able to distinguish it from what's around it. However, that defining characteristic does not have the power to encapsulate that thing with plastic and make it into a thing and make it into something that fits into a category, whether just by itself or in conjunction with mental labeling. Digest that, please, for a moment. <laughs> we don't want to fall to the nihilist position that nothing has a defining characteristic mark. Then you wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, apprehend with certainty anything. So what does that mean in practical terms? I can see you as, because I see the body first, and then I see you, the person, together with the body, because you doesn't have any form. So the, there, there has to be some basis for uh, uh, you appearing. And I can distinguish you from the person next to you and from the desk, and from the chair. But, 
what allows for that distinguishing doesn't put plastic around you and make a big division between you and the chair and you and the person next to you, does it? Things don't exist like in a coloring book with a solid line around them or a plastic coating. And that even science would agree in terms of, uh, you know, the atoms and the force fields and stuff like that. There's no clear boundary. Right? Okay. And similarly, that defining characteristic by its own power doesn't fit you into a category, etc. That has to do with mental labeling with categories. So it's merely in terms of mental labeling that we can establish something as a noble, validly noble object and a, as fitting into a category. So when we have mental labeling with a category, there is the category, there is the basis for, so that's the label, like a knowable object, validly knowable object, and there's the basis, which would be, you know, all the, the, the parts and so on of something. And there is what that category refers to on that basis, in terms of that, based on that basis. So the category refers to some item, but that item is not the basis. It's what it refers to is not the basis and it's not the category. Those are separate words in uh, Tibetan. So, what is uh, an apple? So, there's, uh, you know, um, skin and the uh, fruit and the seeds and the stem and all this, sort of this stuff. And what is an apple? That's the category apple and the word apple. It's referring to, what does it refer to? refers to an apple. That's what the, the referent object is called. So it's the referent object on the basis of the skin and the uh, um, fruit, you know, the, the uh, pulp and the seeds and the stem and the um, sight, the, the uh, red shape, the sound when you bite it, the, the feel of it in your hand, the uh, taste, the smell, on the basis of all of that, and the continuity over moments, on the basis of all of that. There's an apple, so, but that referent object does not have a referent thing that is holding it up. And a referent thing, would be, which is a different word in Tibetan, is like we saw a, uh, 
um, a prop that's holding up a piece of uh, scenery in a theater. So there's nothing on the side, you know, some findable object with a findable defining characteristic that is, in a sense, holding up. It's the focal support is the literal term that is holding up and backing up that referent object. And that absence of such a uh, uh, focal support, you know, support that you've been focusing on, that's findable, the absence of that is uh, what is known as the absence of self-established existence. Other translators call that the absence of inherent existence, but that's what it actually is referring to. That there is a self-establishing nature or inherent nature on the side of the object that establishes it as a focal support of the uh, referent object in mental labeling with the category. So that's a lot of jargon words. Yeah. I know that, but this is our general overview. Do you have some idea of what it's talking about? So, how do we know, how do we get a valid uh, labeling then? For there to be a valid labeling, the Svetantrika said that there had to be an actual findable defining characteristic on the side of the object. There had to be actually a, a referent thing there. But, uh, Prasangaka says that, no, you can only establish the validity from the side of the mind. So this is a progression from the Chittamatra position. They don't agree with the Chittamatra position that the appearance of something can only be established from the side of the mind. They don't agree with that, but that is a stepping stone for being able to understand that the existence of something can only be established from the side of the mind. So again, we have this stepping stone type of uh, thing, the appearance of something, according to Prasangika and Sautrantika, Svatantrika, is established not only from the karmic seed, which establishes all the, you know, the, the tendency Let me start again. In the Chittamatra system, you had one, one natal source for everything in a cognition, a sensory cognition. All the non-static phenomenon in a sensory cognition, static ones are dependent on it. So in a sense, uh, they're there as well, in terms of categories, etc. But uh, the appearance of the object, so the mental hologram, and the primary consciousness and all the mental factors, their arising is coming from one karmic seed. So in the, and that's the natal source, whereas the others, 
So both in Sautrantika earlier on and uh, in Svatantrika and uh, Prasangika, Sautrantika, Svatantrika and Prasangika would say that everything has its own natal source. The karmic seed or tendency is merely to experience this thing, this cognition, but each of the mental factors has its own tendency that is coming from. Remember, seed is the same as tendency, primary consciousness as well, so that accounts for the different strengths of each of the mental factors, and the natal source of the object would be the elements, the external elements that comprise it. That uh, this would be the natal source. So, they don't accept that the appearance of something, the mental hologram, is established merely from the side of the mind. But that's a stepping stone to understand that the existence of something can only be established from the side of the mind. So, how do we get a valid, how do we know that our mental labeling is valid? There needs to be, a, you know, a convention. Convention is talking about what category we uh, label things with. So there has to be a, uh, a convention like this. So then, you know, you can have some weird conventions because there's also a convention of truly established existence or a convention that there's a monster under the bed. So uh, besides, uh, you know, that there is a, such a widely accepted category be the convention, uh, it has to be not contradicted by a mind that validly uh, cognizes conventional truth. In other words, uh, uh, if I see a blur because I have my glasses off, that doesn't, uh, it would be contradicted, the blur would be contradicted by somebody who has good eyesight because there is a, uh, a fault either from the sensors so the uh, cognitive senses, so there's something wrong with my eyes or something wrong with my ears or so on. So it would be contradicted by a mind that validly, you know, cognizes conventional truth. Or it could be by a, uh, a mental thing like a hallucination that is not based on the, uh, sense, the sensory, uh, you know, apparatus you know, paranoia or these sort of, uh, of things. So, not contradicted by a mental, uh, valid cognition of conventional truth. That's the second uh, factor to validate. And the third one is not contradicted by a mind that validly sees the deepest truth. In other words, the uh, absorbed concentration, the non-conceptual absorbed concentration uh, deep co of uh, an aria that would see that there's no such thing as truly established existence. So although there can be a convention of truly established existence and everybody with valid cognition of uh, conventional truth other than a, than a Buddha would uh, see it as, you know, truly established existence, you know, that uh, phenomena are truly established. It's contradicted by an Arya's non-conceptual uh, total absorption on voidness. So those are the three criteria, and those three criteria are from the side of the mind. There's nothing on the side of the object that uh, validates things. This is the Prasangika position, and it makes a lot of sense.
if you think about it. What are we looking at in this room? What are we actually looking at? You know, even going back to the Vibhashikas, there are all these particles. There are no boundaries, there are no lines around things, there's no plastic around things, is there? So it is only really that, and it isn't that there really are you know, lines around them, but it's only when we throw categories and names onto them that it establishes that there are these individual items that we see in this room and individual people. Nevertheless, despite that, conventionally, there are distinguishable objects aren't there? Distinguishable people, distinguishable things. So an example that I uh, often use is with emotions. We all experience something. But do we actually, you know, what is love? You know, I said this example of loving somebody and liking somebody. Where's the boundary? There is no boundary. Everybody experiences something different. And what we experience with each person and each day with that same person even is different. We fit it into a category and that category is a convention with the definition that we find in the dictionary that, that some group of, you know, ancient people decided upon. There's nothing on the side of what we experience that divides it into different emotions, is there? Yet we have these conventions and it allows for communication. That's the importance of words and designation and categories. You can communicate, otherwise speech doesn't work. So conceptual cognition with categories and words is necessary. With the Buddha, it functions without categories, non-conceptually, but for everybody else, it's conceptual. The problem with conceptual is that it gives the appearance that things truly fit into these categories. That you get rid of with enlightenment. Okay, so this is the Prasangika position. So there are applications for this. And remember, we then gave extensive meditations that we can do to show us the practical application of uh, each of these systems. So recall a task that you had to do and how you regarded it as a truly horrible problem because you thought it had the characteristic marks of a horrible problem. 
And based on that, you labeled it with the category of horrible problem and named it a horrible problem. You know, something at work, for example, that it really had the characteristic of a horrible problem. You know, like I'm working on the glossary and I have 1,579 terms that I have to define. I could say that's a horrible task, right, from the side of the object. That allows me to fit it into the category of horrible task. Recall being unaware that it is impossible to find any characteristic mark on the side of the task that has the power to establish it as a thing or as fitting into a certain category or as being the meaning and referent of a word, even in conjunction with mental labeling and designation. Can you repeat that? Recall being unaware, not knowing, or knowing incorrectly, that it's impossible to find a characteristic mark on the side of the task that has the power to establish it as a thing. Where is it? Inside making the definition of 1,579 items. Where is that defining characteristic? It's not a, that would make it a thing. If you look at all the parts, I mean, where? There isn't. Yet I can differentiate it from, you know, answering emails. It's something else, isn't it? And it's impossible to remember being unaware of the fact that it, you can't find a characteristic mark that you know, has the power to establish it as fitting into the category of you know, a horrible task and being the referent of what I'm calling a horrible task, even in conjunction with mental labeling. And then you identified the disturbing emotions, destructive behaviors, and suffering you experienced as a result of such unawareness. For instance, becoming overwhelmed and stressed because you believed the task was inherently impossible and being angry with your boss for asking you to do it. I think that's a very good example. Even if you deconstruct the task into each individual moment of things that you have to do, what puts it all together <laughs> into being a thing that you can call a, a task? But it is a task. It's an assignment by convention because we have words and words describe things.
designate things. As soon as you make something into a thing, self-established thing, you get stressed over it. That's where stress comes from. Because you make me into a thing and the task into another thing and me, I can't handle and the work that's involved in doing the task into the third thing and I can't do it. That's where it comes from. Non-galupas call that, you know, grasping for dualism. That the, the person and the task, you know, each have separate, you know, truly established existence. So they're talking about the same thing, they just use different language. But as soon as you start thinking, this is a horrible thing, <laughs> and me, I can't possibly do it, and how dare they ask me to do it? Poor me. Look at all the suffering that comes from that. Look at all the stress and unhappiness and pressure. I have to finish it. I'm not good enough to be able to do it. So then you deconstruct the task and see that it has arisen dependently on many causes and conditions and that it relies on many parts and is merely the referent object of the mentally labeled category task and the word task. There is no findable self-established referent thing, the task, backing up this referent object. Is there? Being a task arises dependently on all the parts, all the causes and conditions, and being called a task, labeled task, a convention, isn't it? And then, without making a big solid thing out of the task, consider how much happier and at ease you would be if you just dealt with it part by part, step by step. That's what I always say, just do it. Just do it. Without worrying about me and the task and all of that, just do it. My mother, who seemed to intuitively understand this, to at least some level, used to say, just do it straight up and down. Just do it. Take out the garbage. Stop complaining about it. Stop 
you know, delaying, just do it. <laughs> That's the way to make life much easier for yourself. So I wanna just to, to relate it to the Four Noble Truths, it's one of the this is the the this is a, like extra suffering that we create to We create extra in the terms of create you know suffer four noble truths that is a cause of suffering when we make things when we solidify things in a sense. To think that there's something on the side of the task that solidifies it, makes it into a, a thing. And then we, you know, project all sorts of, you know, that's horrible and I can't do it and stuff like that. And what gets more profound is when you apply this to me, to yourself. Remember, with the self, self is an imputation, which means that it can only, it's not self-sufficiently knowable. It can be only known with the basis appearing first, and then the self with the basis. Right? That we learned, even uh, Sautrantika asserts that. So now, what has to appear? Where is the defining characteristic? Vaibhashka said the defining characteristic is, is on the side of the self itself, even though a self is an imputation on the five aggregates. So you just know the self without having to know um, uh, the, the basis appearing. So they are the odd man out, the odd person out in terms of the assertion. That's why they don't assert a subtle selflessness of persons. I say a person is self-sufficiently knowable. But then you get to the Sautrantikas and they say that the defining characteristic of the self is found on the side of mental consciousness because no matter what you are perceiving of a person, the mental consciousness is there. And Chittamatra says it's the Aliyah Vinyana, it's the foundation consciousness that has the uh, defining characteristic of a person. And the Svatantrikas say, go back to saying that it's mental consciousness, because even the Yogacara Svatantrikas don't accept a foundation consciousness. And the Sangaka says it's not found anywhere. It's not found on the side of the basis. And it's not found on the side of the referent object either. So it's not found anywhere in the aggregates, defining characteristic of a person. And it's not found anywhere in the referent object, in the person either. Nevertheless, there is a defining characteristic. We're not talking, but there's no defining characteristic as the power to establish the existence of a thing. And even in that conceptual cognition of mental labeling, nothing is findable. This we'll have to discuss more 
next year when we go to detail, but just as an overview. Now we get into the whole discussion of nothing other than this sort of double negative thing. The, in the conceptual cognition, even that the category, there's nothing findable on the, category, on the side of the category that makes it into the category. So it is what, what is left when you exclude everything that is not the category. So it's nothing other than the category. So the category is, defined, is specified. These nothing other thans are known as specifiers. It's specified by nothing other than the category. And so is the referent object. Referent object is nothing other than the referent object. And that is equivalent to the object, the mental hologram that appears in your conceptual cognition. And the defining characteristic as well is nothing other than the defining characteristic. Even that can't be found. Only it can be specified as nothing other than itself. So by using this method of nothing other than, it's apoha, it's called in Sanskrit, the apoha theory, the nothing other than theory. That's how you get, you can specify things, but you can't specify things in terms of a findable defining characteristic on the side of anything. So in the conceptual cognition, the mental hologram, through the mental hologram, which is nothing other than the mental hologram, nothing other than what represents the object, there's actually the object. But even the object is nothing other than the object. So everything is defined in terms of nothing other than itself, the double negative. So that's how Prasanga gets around all of that. And you had a hint of this, even in the Upanishads before that. Niti niti, it's not this, it's not this, it's not that. And they were talking about, I think, Brahma. I forget which Upanishad that was in, but it is taken you know, much more deeply here. But it fits into this whole, what should we say, um, pan-Indic way of looking at things. Okay? And then, although we haven't practiced and filled out these meditations, then we go and we do don't lend with ourselves and take on that suffering that we have from that uh, unawareness that arises from that unawareness and give ourselves the understanding. And then 
we think and we uh, shift that with compassion to others, you know, doing Donglen with ourselves is based on the determination to be free, renunciation, and then we shift it to others and think about how all the suffering that they experience because they make a big thing out of everything and a big thing out of themselves. And then do Donglen with them. That's the extensive meditation that we can do with this. So there's this whole series of these extensive meditations that we can do with a very practical application of the basic uh, assertions that we have in the tenet systems. And they give us a progressively deeper and deeper understanding. And we appreciate that each of these tenet systems presents very, very helpful methods for diminishing suffering. Each of them will claim that you get rid of suffering completely. But the, each of the sophistic, more sophisticated systems say, well, you haven't gotten rid of everything. Still some suffering there. And the Prasangika says that uh, this is it. You've gotten rid of it completely. And then a Nutra Yoga Tantra will come along and say, well, but you have to understand this with the subtlest level of mind. It's not going to get rid of absolutely, you know, the final, final obscuration with the grosser minds of uh, Sutra or the lower Tantras. So we have that progression. So any further comments or things you'd like to add? Do you get some sort of feeling for this, uh, what Prasangika is talking about? And also, I think it's, you know, what one can appreciate by going, by approaching Prasangika in this gradual manner, this graded manner, is to see that if you were just to try to understand prasangika without it, then to just say that, you know, there is no nose, there is no ear, there is no, you know, this or that, and they can't be found. Where is the self? Is it under your arm? Is it up your nose? I mean, where is the self? You can't find it. That, that becomes trivial. So what would be the response to that? So like the progression really makes you focus on what, what kind of things are being negated. No? Right. The, uh, the progression, as Tsongkhapa emphasizes, citing Shantideva, that the most important thing is to understand the object that's being negated. You can't hit a target without seeing the target. that point. And then what we uh, branched off from in the Tsongkhapa's presentation of um, Vipassana, the, the, the uh, analysis of uh, voidness in Lamrim Chembo, was that Tsongkhapa then analyzes the Prasangika position and says that within that you have to be careful 
not to over-refute or under-refute. And that was the reason why we started this whole class on a separate course on, the ten- on emptiness or voidness and the tenets of the voidness of the self was to appreciate better what Tsongkhapa is actually talking about. So that's what he's talking about. One has to understand this whole context of mental labeling with categories, what it actually is about. And then we can go into, you know, within mental labeling with categories, differentiate the conventional truth of what something is from what's, how something exists. And what aspect is, you know, valid and what's invalid within that. Okay? Did you say that the Prasangika will not agree with the same Nato source? The Prasangika will not agree with whom? The same Nato, same, same Nato source? The same? Natal source. The same Natal source. Right, Prasangika does not agree with the Chittamatra that the mental hologram, you know, the appearance in a cognition, and the primary consciousness and mental factors in that cognition all come from one karmic seed, the same karmic source that doesn't agree with that. It says there are external phenomena. There are external phenomena that arise from the, their elements as their natal source. Different causes. From the various causes and so on. And it's not just within your cognition that they arise from them. Yeah. I mean, also your consciousness. The and your consciousness you and how you see it comes... Problem, uh, also some others. Right. From karma comes... Uh, your, the situation of experiencing them. Karma is the, depends on what system of karma you want to uh, use, but it is the compulsiveness that drives you into perceiving something or thinking something or saying something. If we use the simplest presentation of, uh, of karma, or that uh, compulsively will shape your body as you do, you know, do something, or shape the sound of the voice as you say something. I mean, there's many different presentations of karma. Some are more complex than uh, others. But in any case, the actual mental factors each have their own tendency that it's arising from, and the, you are born from your mother. You know, I mean, that's not negating that aspect. That you are born from your mother, so that doesn't, you know, that fact is not arising from the karmic seed of my seeing you. In other words, 
there are many, many causes and conditions for my seeing you, for that mental hologram. That mental hologram is also arising because there is a body, a person, the, the body as the imputation on the, per, uh, the person as an imputation on the body. So the body did derive from your parents, from your mother's womb. But the way you see on the appearance is coming from your consciousness. The hologram is coming, but the hologram is not just coming from the karmic seed. There is a corresponding body. The causes I can't see, but nevertheless, it comes from the cause. There is a body. There is a conventionally existent body that is not just established because there's a hologram. But it is, but it is there. I mean, this gets very, very complex. This is why we need to go in more detail because, for instance, uh, when we are, uh, all of us are looking at, at you, there's an imputation on the body there. The hologram that each of us sees is different. So is there a common locus, common denominator that we're all looking at? Well, Chittamatra says, no, it comes from shared karma. Sautrantika would say, yes, we're all looking at the objective body that's there. And even Svatantrika would say that there is, you know, a common locus there. But it gets very complicated when you want to analyze that from a prasangika point of view. Are we all seeing the same body? Well, there isn't that, you know, you are a, a self-established thing, that body, and a, each of us sees something different on the basis of that. And what a limited being and what a Buddha sees is different. But they're all looking at the same thing that's, that's, that's there, pointable. There is nothing there. There is nothing self-established there that, that everybody is looking at. Except for nothing other than mental Nothing other than the, that body. It can be specified. That takes quite a while to actually uh, integrate into how we perceive things. Are we all seeing the same thing? Well, depends on how you understand same thing, isn't it? That's why we need to go in much more detail after our summer break. These are the things that we will examine. But as an overview, you know, what we what hopefully we take from this is a taste of what Prasangika is talking about and to see that it is actually very practical. That's the main message of all these, the presentation and all these tenant systems, and they're very practical. 
They're not just abstract theory. But you have to really think about it and see how it applies. What is it actually talking about? And that is based on refuge. Being totally convinced that everything in the Dharma, in the teachings, is intended to help eliminate suffering. Therefore, it is up to us to analyze and think and try to figure out how any particular teaching helps to eliminate suffering, not just take it as some intellectual theory. And if you really take that safe direction from the Dharma, that's what it means. I'm convinced that this is a way to overcome suffering. Therefore, it's up to me to try to understand it. And that takes eliminating mental blocks, emotional blocks, and mental blocks. And to do that, you have to build up a lot of positive force. And remember, we were saying positive force is particularly in terms of Mahayana, that you're opening up and thinking to benefit all beings and working to benefit others. Your mind isn't closed think and narrow thinking just of me. So if you open your heart, in a sense, if we can use that terminology to everyone, it opens your mind to overcome these mental blocks for understanding. So it actually makes sense logically that building up this positive force, so-called merit, helps you to understand things more deeply. It's true. And one needs to have confidence in that. That's why in the presentation of the seven Arya jewels, seven Arya gems, the first one is this confident belief. If you translate it as faith, it gives a whole different flavor. But you have to actually be confident that the Dharma teachings are true in order to really take them seriously and work with them and think more deeply. That's the basis. And to believe that they are true, you use logic, you use various means of valid cognition. Okay. So let's end with a dedication. We think whatever positive force, whatever their understanding has come from this, may it go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for all beings to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of all.